Radiolab is supported by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, exercising, cleaning. What if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org/podcast. <laughs> Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. Okay. You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. Why? From WNYC. And NPR. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage your hosts for this evening, Jan Aberrat and Robert Krolwich! I'm Chad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radiolab. And a while back, we were on stage. We were live at the Paramount Theater in downtown Seattle. This was several years ago. We called that show Apocalyptical because it was about endings, different kinds of endings of different things. It was a show that we did with... uh all of these incredible musicians and video artists. And, and we had puppets. We had huge yes. puppets, all of which you can see on the video of our, on our website at radiolab.org. But what we're going to do for you now is play you part of that original show. Actually, uh, the first story in that show, which is about the end of the dinosaurs. Because we, we have news to tell you about that story, and it's verisimilitude. Yes. So we're going to go first play you part one of our show about dinosaurs. Let's go back to the Paramount Theater in Seattle. Here we go. Okay, we're going to start you off with a guy, well, the guy who started it off for us. It's a guy named Jay. Jay Malosh, professor at Purdue University, and I study impact craters, among other things. Not only can Jay Malosh create impact craters with his mind... But he and his colleagues have been investigating this moment almost as if it were a crime scene that happened not 60 million years ago, but yesterday. And the story that they've put together, it's more than just interesting. It's frankly, it's frankly terrifying. And weirdly specific as it happens. Take, for example, the seemingly simple question of when. When did it happen? You don't mean like the year, because that would be a little too specific. No, I, I don't know if you remember, but Jay got even more specific than that. This was a casual question that I threw out. Listen to his answer. By the way, do we know anything about seasons? Was this a warm, a particularly warm? Actually, it was between, uh, well, this is a bit of a stretch, but it was sometime between June and July. Really? Wow, you could say that and so specifically? How would you know that? The reasoning is we, we can, for example... Um, it- this, was the, uh, this was the first surprise. It's kind of a controversial idea, but it basically goes like this. Jay says, scientists have found some pollen in rocks which date from that time. Two different kinds of pollen. 
And based on an analysis of those two kinds of pollen, we know that the um, impact took place between the flowering of the lotus and the flowering of the water lilies. Whoa. Okay, so that's a lotus you see flowering on the left. It's a water lily flowering on the right. You can see this if you look at our video online. Fossils found at the impact site that had pollen from both of these flowers in the same rock would suggest that the impact did in fact take place somewhere between June and July. It's one of those things in geology, we, we get a, a glimpse of a, a moment far, far back in time. So, let's go deeper into that moment. All right, everybody, let's collectively rewind our minds back in time, tens of millions of years into the past, 66 million years ago, to be precise. There they are, majestic beasts, hanging out on the plains, eating their lotus leaves. Sometime in June, June 17th, let's say. And everything on this day? Pretty much normal. This particular fateful day was no different than any of millions and millions of previous days as far as the dinosaurs were concerned. But if there were any astronomers at the time, which there weren't, they might have had some inkling that something was coming because... Had they looked up? They would have seen... A tiny little... Dot of light in the sky. Or as planets, the moon, move with respect to the stars, this would have had a constant bearing. And an old seaman could tell you that if you see something constant bearing, that's on a collision course with you. And that thing, of course, is our asteroid. Zeroing in on the Earth. I want to say that we do know quite a bit about this asteroid from the size of the crater and from the amount of certain minerals found at the impact site. We know that the asteroid was roughly six miles wide. And then again, roughly six miles long, which makes it approximately the size of Manhattan Island. Or, or, or Mount Everest. It's roughly the size of Mount Everest. That is Doug Robertson, a geologist who knows quite a bit about this asteroid. And by the way, it has a name. It's, it's the asteroid it's called Baptistina. Baptistina? Why? That's... Stina. Baptistina. I don't know. Oh. They, they name asteroids. On another subject... We do know that the Earth's moon was probably produced by a collision with something the size of Mars. Whoa. I just threw that in because it's cool. It doesn't really relate to our story. We don't have the whole evening here. Let's just stay to it, okay? The dinosaurs are here on Earth. They're eating their leaves. Meanwhile, up in space, our asteroid, Baptistina, is now hurtling towards the Earth. 20,000 miles an hour. Very fast. 20 times faster than a very fast rifle bullet. And scientists couldn't be sure what would happen, mathematically, I mean, when an, a Mount Everest-sized bullet traveling at 20,000 miles an hour hits our atmosphere. The atmosphere is really just a very, very thin skin over the rest of the Earth. So, scientists thought, all right, if we're going to construct this story, let's just take it piece by piece and first figure out what would happen when this big ball hurling through space, slams into our atmosphere, which is made of gas, of course. So just to approximate, let's fire a bullet through some gas and watch what happens. Now here we basically showed a super slow motion video of a gun firing a bullet underwater. You can see it on our website, radiolab.org. It's very beautiful. You see the bullet coming out and freeze it right there at the edge, okay? Basically what you see is this bullet steaming through the water 
And by the way, we use water as an approximation for gas, because in gas you would have the same effect I'm about to describe. Creating a wake behind it, and the wake gets wider and wider as it trails away from the bullet. And if you imagine this shape in three dimensions, really what you're looking at is a kind of a cone, like a funnel shape. And inside the, 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 the walls of the funnel, inside that cone, is nothing. 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 Well, cause, because it's in water, so you're saying there's, there's, it's like a hole in the water. That's what I'm saying. There's nothing in there. It's a uh, vacuum in there because the, the bullet is, sh- is shooting through the water. It pushes the water out of the way, and for a beat, the water doesn't have time to come back together, and so huh. all you have is emptiness in there. Right there, this, what you're seeing is a massive hole in the water created by a tiny little bullet. Now imagine that that bullet is six miles wide, and the hole that it's making is right above your head. Well, what does that mean if you're a dinosaur looking up? What would happen? Well, if you were in the right place, and, and this is going to be the wrong place in a second or two, <laughs> if you were in the right place to, to look behind the asteroid as it came in, you'd probably be able to, to see clearly through the space. What? Does that mean you would suddenly be looking at a nighttime hole in a daytime sky? Right. Whoa. To be fair, Jay did tell us that uh, you would need special kinds of eyeballs to see this night hole in the day sky, and the dinos didn't have that, so... Science! Still, I mean, just imagine what a last image that would be to see day and night come together in the same moment. But, according to Jay... You better not blink because before you could open your eyes again, uh, the asteroid would have hit the surface. And if you're in a position to to see that, then you're going to be engulfed by the violence that is just about to occur. By the way, the audience was just laughing at a Dinos de los Muertos graphic that just came on the screens. So we know it was a big explosion, fine, that it was violent, fine, but I think we should be a little bit subtle about this because obviously if an asteroid is the size of Manhattan and it lands on your head, you're not going to feel very good about that. But if Manhattan is, is hitting the planet Earth, that's a little bit like a pebble hitting an enormous beach ball. Yeah, and I can imagine that the, the little pebble size, relativistically speaking, the pebble would create some damage in the spot where it landed. But let's suppose that you are um, a leaf-eating mother of three hadrosaur living in New Zealand, right? And you're just, spe- at the moment that the asteroid comes in, you're on the, you're antipodal, you're on the other side of the planet. Would you have any idea that this was happening? Well, that was the next question that we took to Jay. How much damage would this thing actually do? Well, we, we can do experiments. We can produce things, uh, situations like this, in small quantities in the laboratories. Okay, you all set in here? Which brings us... Yeah, we're, we're good to hear. You good? To this guy. Uh, Peter Schultz, and I like to do impact experiments. <laughs> <laughs> Pete Schultz basically has every 13-year-old's dream job. He gets to blow shit up for a living. Basically what Pete does is he works at this place that you're seeing right here on the screen. This is the NASA Ames Laboratory in California. And uh, the thing that they're putting together there in the middle frame, that is a giant three-story tall cannon. What Pete does is he takes projectiles. So for example, you're gonna see him take a little glass bullet over there and he's gonna load it into the top of the cannon and then he's gonna fire it right into a stand-up for planet Earth, which for him will be a sand pit. And lucky for us, when we called Pete, 
he was just about to pull the trigger on this thing. So you're, we're calling you on a day in which you are trying to ex- re-experience the day? Actually, yeah, but I think we're going to survive. That's our plan. Navigated <laughs> and reset. Okay, hold on. We gotta, we gotta assume the position. We have to cross <laughs> our fingers. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. We have all of our ready lights. Battles in. Here we go. Rolling. Oh, good. That is gorgeous. That, Jeff, oh my gosh. Are they gonna, is that, you have to get instant playback? What what just happened? Oh oh my gosh. That is the sound of a man very happy with his explosion. You can see every piece of this, uh, of what's happening. So based on experiments like this, people like Pete can figure out precisely what happened when the asteroid hit the Earth. They can quantify the explosion's power by basically leveraging up experiments like this. So according to Doug, the amount of energy that would have been unleashed when that thing came rushing in onto Earth is roughly this. It would hit the Earth with an explosion that's 100 million megatons. (laughs) Sarah Lipstate. Sarah, our guitarist, kind of swung her guitar around, had a metal moment. Don't look at her wrong or she'll do that to you. Okay, so here's essentially how Doug broke that down for us. Two tons of TNT, we're talking tons here, not megatons, two tons of TNT will essentially do this. On one of the three screens, you see a 10-story building imploding. Two tons of TNT will take down a building. Now, 15,000 tons of TNT, that is what the United States dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. On a second screen, we see archival footage of the atomic bomb. That chaos is 15,000 tons of TNT. Now these days, according to Doug Robertson, a hydrogen bomb... Current hydrogen bombs are typically of the order of one million tons of TNT equivalent. Now, one million tons of TNT equivalent, that's what we call a megaton. And if you remember, Doug said that the asteroid impact was the equivalent of 100 million megatons. So really what he's saying in concrete terms is that that impact was the equivalent of 100 million of those bombs going off all at once in the same spot. Which is a lot. (laughs) That is true, that is true. However, it it really depends on what you mean by a lot. Because I was doing a little Googling and I was surprised to learn that uh, 110 million megatons is not nearly enough to destroy the planet. To destroy the entire planet, you would need, you ready for this, 110 quadrillion megatons of TNT, which is 100 million times 110 million megatons of TNT. So going back to your hadrosaur situation, mother of three in New Zealand, if the thing came in antipodal to her, maybe she would feel the ground shake a little bit, but after a minute she'd be like, whatever, and she'd go back to eating leaves. She probably wouldn't notice it. Well, no, 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 because that's not what we were taught in homeroom by Mrs. McGrew or whoever your teacher was. Here is the classic explanation. There was an impact, of course, and it kicked up an enormous amount of dust. You'll remember this. The dust then kind of covers the planet. It blankets the earth, makes the earth very cold, makes the earth very nasty. All the big plants die, the little plants get sick, the dinosaurs get hungry, the dinosaurs get sick, and then gradually, you know, they get dead. 
deader and deader and deader from different things. 10,000 years, 30,000 years, 40, till you get like, oh, like 900,000 years later, you got a shivering last dinosaur sitting there in the cold going, (laughs) and that's the end. That's the story we were told in school. Is a long, slow, wintry collapse. Yeah. No, no. Why would we tell these good people that tired old story from Mrs. What is it, Miss Magruder's? I made her Magruder tonight. Okay. Yes. Let us offer up a completely different it's Scottish take. night tonight. Scottish, all right. We'll, we'll go with that. Mm-hmm. Let's actually flip the understanding completely. I think we should. Based on uh, new science. So, all right, here's what we're going to do. Keith, pull up that uh, ballistics video that we showed earlier with the red sand. Can you p- sort of pull that up and blow it up to the three screens and then, yeah, rewind it back if you... Thank you. There, oh, no, back just a bit more. All the way to the beginning. Okay, so this is a 6,000 frame a second video that you're seeing here. This is from Pete's lab. At this point on the screen, all you're seeing is a pit of red sand. Now, what you see in the first few frames is you see the laser hitting right there. Red sand flying in the air, super slow-mo. Then the next frame forward, right there, you see some fire. You see a little bulb of fire erupt near the impact site. Right where the laser hits the sand, there's this little clump of flame, and we freeze on that spot. Now, scientists can now measure the temperatures in that spot right there. Oh, yeah, there right is. there. Okay. And just to state the obvious, we know from those measurements that that spot right there would have gotten very, 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 very hot. You know, way beyond the temperature of the, the sun. I mean, we're talking temperatures maybe 20,000 degrees. Whoa. The sun's temperature is about 5,000 degrees. And if we're talking temperatures four times hotter than the sun, well, anything that's that hot is going to instantly, instantly turn to gas. A very, very high temperature, high pressure gas. It's actually rock vapor, rock steam. So imagine this thing comes barreling in, this asteroid. It doesn't just bounce off the earth. It plows into the earth. It goes into the surface. Two miles in, five miles in, seven miles in. 10 miles in, 20 miles into the earth it goes. All the rock that it's plowing into is turning into a liquid and then into a gas. And now, watch what happens next. This is a basic physics experiment we're going to show you. On the screen you see a very lovely video, actually, of a hand dropping a metal ball into some sand. This is just a dude dropping a ball in some sand. Watch this right here. Ball goes in. In like a millisecond, After it makes impact, disappears into the sand, a little spear of sand goes shooting back in the opposite direction. Sort of a bounce-back effect. Does this always happen, this whatever this is? It's like Newton's law of something. Yeah. Newton's law of sand, we'll say. No, but what you see is you see this fine plume of sand goes shooting back in the opposite direction as a sort of rebound, right? Mm. Now imagine that that ball is an asteroid, and that sand over there, that's the planet Earth. So, Keith, play that one more time. We play the video again, but this time, as the ball drops, it gradually morphs into an asteroid. (laughs) Thank you for those sounds. So, you would get the same effect. You would get the... (laughs) The simple point is... It's just something we do. You wonder where we get all of our sound design? It's out of that man's mouth. That's where. So you would get that same bounce back effect of a fine plume shooting back in the opposite direction. But we know 
from what we just heard uh, uh, Doug describe that it would not be ro- it would not be sand in this case. It would be rock gas. This plume of hot gas expands upward and pushes right on through the atmosphere, up into space. Some fraction hit the moon. No really? Kidding. Some fraction of that hit Mars. Okay, so now you got this sneeze of rock vapor. It's out in space. Basic physics says that as it travels out farther away from the Earth, what's going to happen is it's going to start to cool down a bit. And when it cools... It recondenses into little droplets that uh, basically form glass very quickly. Little droplets of glass about the size of sand. Now, if you look at one of these little droplets of glass under a microscope, this is what it looks like right there. On the screen, you see what looks kind of like a translucent snowball. That is actually a, a magnified image of one of these bits of glass that fell from space that day. Most of them didn't land on the ground. I'll talk about that in a second. But there it is. I don't know about you, but I find that totally terrifying. Because that's... It looks like a little Baptistina, right? Tiny little asteroid. Except now imagine trillions of these things in a cloud, in a cloud of shrapnel going out, 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 away from the Earth. And what's going to happen next is that it's going to start to lose momentum, that cloud. And when it does, the Earth's gravity is going to grab back hold of it and say, come on back. And 90% of them come back to the Earth. Well, does falling glass do harm? Yes, because what happens is that the, the glass out in space starts to spread out like north and south and east and west, and eventually it will appear in the sky over New Zealand. It's now a global phenomenon. And, you know, it's really hard to imagine what the hadrosaur would have seen. But the thing to keep in mind is that these things as they're coming in, these bits of glass, uh, 90-some-odd percent are burning up in the atmosphere. So very few of them are hitting the ground. So from her point of view, probably would have looked like the greatest meteor shower anyone has ever seen. With one significant bummer, which is this. When these little bits of glass come in, each one that burns up is depositing a little bit of heat into the sky. And collectively, there's such a massive rain of these things coming in. Well, Well, the heat would build up. The sky would turn red. It would be getting hotter and hotter. And at a certain point, Jay wondered, well, how hot exactly would it have gotten? Like, how much heat exactly would have built up there in the sky and then started to radiate down? Um, We uh, calculated the amount of heat that would come down, a, a number, 10 kilowatts per square meter. And yeah, okay, well, we get this number. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, I, I went home and I um, hooked up a, a, a current meter and tried to measure the amount of heat produced in my oven for different amounts of power. And I could get about seven kilowatts per square meter in my oven on broil. And <gasps> like 500 degrees broil, you yeah. mean? But that wasn't quite enough. Not nearly. So Jay started measuring other kinds of ovens. Uh, And I I finally found out that the heat would be, in fact, like being in a pizza oven. A pizza oven is about right. Which means that if you were a terrestrial dinosaur anywhere above the ground on the Earth on that day, you would have experienced some heat that is almost unimaginable. Maybe it started at 100 degrees because it was June, it was summer. But within minutes, it would have been 300 degrees. 500 degrees, 700 degrees, 900 degrees, 
Estimates are on that day, temperatures topped out at something like 1,200 degrees. At that temperature, nothing can protect you. Your scales, your fur, whatever you got, it's not gonna do any good. Your blood will literally start to boil inside your body and you will die. So essentially, according to this theory, the dinosaurs and everything else on Earth that day would have been incinerated. Doug thinks that's what did them in, not so much the impact, but all that ejecta that went up into the sky, came down as glass rain and created that heat. That's what did them in. And he would argue it didn't just do some of them in, or even many of them in. He would say it did all of them in, all at once. There is zero evidence that any dinosaur made it through. And the crazy part of this theory is that Jay and Doug think that the whole process, from the impact to the glass rain to the incineration of all of these species on the planet... It would have taken a few hours. His best guess, he thinks maybe two hours. I mean, that's less time than a, a business lunch. Yeah, you try getting east, north, west, anywhere on Mercer Street at rush hour in two hours, can't do that. I mean, if you think about it, that is less time than you will spend in this theater tonight. That means that you're saying that an animal that had been supreme on the planet for 200 million years disappears in a few hours completely? Yes. Yep. That's what the evidence suggests. That's right. Well, you can consider the evidence, but also you could consider common sense. I mean, we've got a world filled with terrestrial dinosaurs. They were on every continent. They are even in Antarctica. And to say that they all disappeared in two hours, I mean, all, that, would, that suggests that there's none of them in, out of harm's way, none of them in a cave somewhere, none of them in a grotto, none of them in a in a protected forest of any kind. I mean, the word all in that connection is just too much. I just don't buy it. Well, yeah, I mean, the truth is that the science is never going to be so uh, exact as to say, yeah, all of them disappeared, or it happened on a single day or on an afternoon. I mean, no, no tool that we have is that precise. But what Jay is saying is that it happened fast, very fast, nothing made it through. What I find interesting is that ultimately, you don't need the ballistics 
or anything we've shown you so far to know that something major and sudden happened. Because you can see evidence of it literally etched into the earth. So, here's the spot where we first found the Kitty Boundary. You can see it really well out in Colorado, actually. We sent uh, one of our producers, Molly Webster, out there to meet a paleontologist named Kirk Johnson. They hiked over a couple of hills. They found this one specific spot. I'm like ready for a dinosaur to come around the corner. And... A new minute. They started to dig. We were digging down like a foot at this point from where we were. Turns out for every three feet you get down 10,000 years in time. See, the earth has layers kind of like a tree has rings. And every three feet down you go, you're going back in time about 10,000 years. And when you go all the way down, all the way back to 66.09 million years, you will find this one little skinny strip of rock. Okay. That's the kitty boundary. That. This one skinny gray line. This, this gray, crappy... Oh, that! This. Now, in a very real way, that line that you're seeing, that represents the day the asteroid hit. The day. And just above that line... That's a little bit after the day. Just below that line... There's a little bit before the day. The line is called the KT boundary. And what's cool is you can actually touch it. You can touch evidence of that moment. In fact, Kirk, what he did that day was he took his finger and he dug a piece out and he handed it to Molly. This, we're holding, I'm holding you're the holding, KT. <laughs> you're holding the KT boundary. It's like, uh, it's almost like chunks of coal. Yeah, but it's not. What yeah. you're holding is a dark gray mudstone. It's a carbon-rich mudstone. And in that mudstone, you'll find all kinds of things. I mean, you'll find uh, very rare minerals like iridium that probably came in on the asteroid and got smushed into that line. Those little glass balls I was talking about, those little hell balls, well, if you get out a microscope and you look at that rock, you will see them in there. We put up a funny cartoon of the little hell balls. They're all in that line. How thick do you think that line is? What's about an inch? Is, like, hidden in there is sort of the story of that day. Absolutely. And here's the crazy thing. If this is the line right here, this little strip here, Robert traces a picture of the KT boundary with his finger. And then you dig just below the line, you are going to find over and over again dinosaurs everywhere. I mean, they're not going to be alive, of course. He starts putting some toy dinosaurs onto the line and making them move. I'm giving them a certain amount of energy, which I shouldn't, but uh, they're fossils. And you will find dinosaur fossils from Europe and Idaho and Montana. This one says it was made in China. But <laughs> if you just go above the line, you don't find any dinosaurs. So below the line, scientists have looked everywhere above the line. And they haven't, well, they, everywhere they have looked anyway, they found nothing, nothing, nothing. It's a different world. That's the amazing thing. It's a different world. And it's pretty rare you can go, this is one world, and that's another world. So you're literally just pointing pinky to pointer finger spread. Yeah. This is another moment where I would urge you at some point, not now, keep listening, but at some point, watch the video of this performance because what Sarah, Darren, Glenn, and Keith do in this moment, visually, is pretty amazing. (laughs) 
Okay, so that was the story we told about the end of the dinosaurs uh, live at the Paramount Theater in Seattle, Washington. Um, when we come back, we're going to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, our reporter Molly Webster and I will dish about what we have just learned about that day, those hours so long ago. We have a whole... I know, I'm not going to tell you this. Yeah, don't tell. You just have to stay around. It's coming up in just a minute. This is Mike Bell from Newton, North Carolina. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about hustle culture. You know, the whole rise and grind, go big or go home thing. It's a lifestyle that may not be for you, but one that your money can handle thanks to Betterment. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. How? Their automated technology optimizes your investments again and again. With Betterment, your money is taking ice baths at 5 a.m. while you get your well-deserved rest. Your money downs protein smoothies and automatically reinvests your dividends all before you head out the door. Your money is a workaholic, but you don't have to be because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad. I'm Robert. We are back. Now, you just heard our drastic, in-the-moment version of the day the dinosaurs all died. And now... Do you think you're thinking of something different? No, no, no. It was some guy who was sort of an amateur, and he was lit, yeah. and he went to South Dakota <laughs> or something. We have an update. Maybe you should brain dump to me. <laughs> <laughs> From our reporter, Molly Webster, who reported that story for us way back when, and now she is here again with... Um, News. Very interesting news. Well, so we're updating the apocalyptical episode, right? Which was probably the last time I saw you like, <laughs> six years ago. <laughs> I don't know. And um, and the reason we're updating it is because this science article came out that basically, if it proves to be true, it could be one of the largest paleontological discoveries of the day the dinosaurs died. Day. Mm-hmm. Mm. It claims to tell the story of the first 
15 minutes to three hours after the asteroid hit down in Mexico. And basically what it is is a geologic formation that is kind of like that line that we saw in Colorado, but like that line on steroids. And uh, it's in the southwest corner of North Dakota. Which um, is not close to Central America. It's not close to, it's not close to the Gulf of Mexico at mm. all. It's like 3,000 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. And this particular site used to be, I guess, the assumption is 66 million years ago that it was kind of like a river, be- like a river valley that was muddy and warm. And it was near something called the Western Interior Seaway. So then what did they find there? So one of the authors on this paper is on this super famous paleontologist, Jan Smit. Mm-hmm. He said when he went to the site and he stood there, he's like, what I see in this place is a three-hour story of that day with all the victims. And it feels like a movie is playing out before me. Well, so he can sort of turn it into a scene-by-scene-by-scene adventure in time? Yeah, so the story that they lay out in the paper is that this area, within like 15 minutes after the asteroid, it was hit by waves from the Western Interior Sea, and they brought with them um, saltwater fish and like seashells and things like into this freshwater area. And then at the same time, remember like we talked about those glass balls that fell from the sky? Yes. So the story that this area tells is that there are actually kind of like three phases of those glass balls of various like size and proportions and some that went really, really far into like space and came back. And so they came back later than all the other ones and are more, you know, it's funny. It's like all glass balls in the end, really. (laughs) But, But like if you're a paleontologist, you're really geeking out right now over like the different types of glass balls that this site holds. These glass balls are basically the spill of the giant crash. Yeah. And some of them are actually made of particles from the actual impact site. Like in all of the previous sites they had found in the United States, none of those glass balls were actually still glass. They had decomposed into clay. Apparently glass Mm -hmm. will change into clay over time. time. I did not know this. Um, But in this location, they actually have glass unaltered by the passage of time. So it holds within it like the air and geochemistry of that day, of that day wow. and that place. And they found some that were actually, I feel like this is such a Jurassic Park moment, they found some that were trapped in amber mm-hmm. that haven't that are totally unaltered. Wow. And I was just like, I, I really don't know anything except for that like Jurassic Park made me think that anything in amber is really important. <laughs> <laughs> and very old. <laughs> very old. Yeah. And like and frozen and, in and time. Holds yeah. holds all of the memories of mm-hmm. Mother Earth. And um, just to back up for a second, the <laughs> yeah. site itself back in the back in the on the day that this this asteroid hit the Earth, that was a tropical, well populated <clears throat> place. Yeah, so subtropical, well-populated. So it would have dinosaurs, and it would have... Yeah, so it would have dinosaurs, it would have fish, it seemed to be covered in trees, insects, lots of insects, uh, mammals. Little, little it looks like it, mammals, right? Yeah, like whatever little, like... our oldest mammal was. Yeah, so it was a really, like, lush, happening area. And what they see in this site that they've uncovered today is what appears to be instantaneous death. 
they've described fish that are stacked, dead fish, fossilized fish, that are stacked like logs. And it's freshwater fish and marine fish. And they do describe it as like a mass grave. There are fish fossils like wrapped around tree bases. Like like creatures and plants and stones it's, and pebbles and shellfish and everything. Saltwater, freshwater, everything all smooshed together. It feels it, like a tumble of life that was like thrown, like almost like thrown together in a wash and like wow. mixed up. You know, if you're, a, if you're an animal in that moment, you're there and something happens in Mexico and you have no idea. Right. But maybe about 15 minutes after that thing happens in Mexico that you have no idea about, you might feel the earth rumble. Mm. Uh, there's some shaking. And then that rumbling, that shaking, um, comes with it a big wave from the sea. Whoa. And so you get this big whoosh that comes in. And then what happens is that whoosh comes in is you're already starting to get the glass balls from the heavens. And so... Uh, and what they see is you get this like wave of kind of what seems to be almost like raining glass balls. And then that's like mixed in with the mud from like the tidal surge and the layers of things that are dying. And the fish, like some of the details that stand out to me the most are um, uh, the, the fish are all generally pointed in the same direction. And they're like stacked pretty tightly, mouths open, and their fins splayed. But one of the things I think is super cool is that all that different stuff we talked about happening across the globe in our original show, like it probably got really hot. Like, you know, that was Jay Malosh was like, right. it's really hot. Doug Robertson was talking about like the boiler, the boiler effect. And then we talked about a flash of blue light. And we talked about things raining from the sky. And um, we talked about June or July, all that stuff. A lot of that stuff was based on really smart models. Um, this seems to be a place that actually will provide evidence either for or against those models. Uh, like charred tree trunks, mm. which I think made like Jay Malosh really happy because he was like, I did get really hot, you know. <laughs> and then there were like the fish wrapped around trees. And then there appears to be a dinosaur bone and um, possibly a dinosaur bone with skin still attached. And Kirk Johnson said if, if that is, if it really is a dinosaur bone and that site is connected to the asteroid impact like they think it is, it would be the youngest dinosaur ever. Um, My last question is, is there something we need to know about the man whose dig this <laughs> is that would color our feelings about it? Uh, the, the study's author, the main author is this guy, Robert De Palma. He's in his late 30s. He does not have a Ph.D. He works a lot outside of normal academia. But um, Jay Malosh, who was in our first mm -hmm. thing, he is the editor on the, on the article Oh. And then Walter Alvarez and Jan Smith are in the article, are, are co-authors. Um, and then this other guy, like March, Mark Richards, who's like a really famous tsunami earthquake guy. Um, so he's, he's got a collection of people around him. And I think everyone else says, like, if the stuff that they say that they have is there, it's amazing. I do think one of the things in the paper, like, is like, people are like, you are claiming to know a three-hour window 66 million years ago, that is a very big claim, <laughs> right? You're really going to have to produce a lot of evidence. And I think that people think it could be there. Boy, you convinced me yeah. if you got 
It looks Bunches good. Bunches of animal all squished up together all at once, and you've got rain that you can account for in different stages, and that looks like you're right there at the splat moment mm-hmm. plus three hours. I know. And everything's dead, <laughs> and the forest is burned. It's like it, it's almost like it's exactly what we said. I know. I was like, well, I'm hooked. It's just a, it does leave you at the end of the day feeling a little bit nervous to be on this big, safe blue dot, recognizing that we're so vulnerable, that life is really fragile when a pebble can murder. You know what I think is the crazy part is if you were an animal standing in North Dakota, you would have no idea what was happening. There's like, I like logic. I like to be able to say, oh, there's a source, and then a thing happened. And to just be there and all of a sudden the earth starts rattling like a bell around you and then a tidal wave comes in and then I'm dead. A tidal wave comes in when you're not even near the sea. No. Like that to me is the most is the most mm. stunning part. The is taste just, of salt on your mouth as you die thinking, you know, where did that is what? Yeah, it's just it's just like to just be standing there unawares and then a thing happens that really has nothing to do with you. Nothing. That's the weird part to me. Thank you, Molly. Sure. want to give a very special thanks to the people who shared the stage with us. Sarah Lipstate from Noveller, Darren Gray on the bass, and Glenn Kochi on the drums. They're both from the band on Fillmore. We were so lucky to share the stage with those guys, along with um, uh, video maestro Keith Scratch, who was doing the live video. And our brilliant puppeteer, Myron Gousseau. Oh my god, that guy. So good. Check out all of them uh, at radiolab.org slash live. You can see them doing what they do. Uh, visually, it's pretty. It's pretty worth watching. I'm Chad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. Thanks for listening.
Hi, this is Jason Studstill in Seattle, Washington. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bresler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Hobti, Tracy Hunt, Nora Keller, Matt Kielty, Robert Krolwich, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliai, Audrey Quinn, and Neil Dinesha, and our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.